want you to think for a moment and really think. What is at the center of your life? What is at the core of who you are, the foundation of your identity and your purpose? This question matters. It matters a lot. We, we all have layers to our lives. We have layers of importance, things that we participate in, some more important than others, some more meaningful than others. Could be our work, our family, things that we do in our society, uh, our neighborhoods, our culture, could be aspects of politics, our hobbies, our friendships. All of these are various layers of various importance. But what happens when one of those layers that is supposed to bring or has in the past brought some sense of meaning and purpose to our lives, some semblance of fulfillment, what happens when one of those layers begins to let us down and no longer brings fulfillment, or it goes away? What happens if you lose your job? Your kids grow up and you they move out. You never stop being a parent, but it, it drastically changes. What happens if your health changes and you can no longer do certain things that brought meaning and purpose to your life? What happens then? If that's the core, the foundation of your life, what have you lost and how are you going to go on? Let me ask you another question. Are you a Christian? And if so, where does that fit into your life? Are you a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ? And, and is that just another one of the layers of your life that's just added on to an already busy full life of one of many things that you hope will bring mean, meaning and purpose to your life? And so today I want to look at a tendency that I think we all have to make our relationship with Jesus or our understanding of religion or, or faith to make it just another layer of our life, just like anything else that we just add on and we hope it will help us even if just for a little while. And then we add Jesus onto our life and it's like we're praying, Jesus, I, I have all these other layers. If you would just bless them, I really like them and I'd rather not mess them up. And I'd really rather you didn't mess them up. So Jesus, if you could just come alongside and bless everything else in my life and make it better, that would be great. Today we are in Numbers chapter 2. Go ahead and turn to the book of Numbers, right at the beginning of the Bible, toward the beginning of the Bible. Numbers chapter 2. And we're in the sermon series on Numbers. If you know, the, the book of Numbers happens during the time of the Exodus. God has brought his people out of Egypt to this mountain, and he has communicated to them and given them his law. And they're just about to move on from this place and head toward the promised land. And that's what the book of Numbers is all about. And at the very beginning of this book, they're getting ready to set out. And God is teaching them and training them and shaping them in various ways to get them ready to set out from this place. And we're in this sermon series called Are We There Yet? Uh, because it is a book about a long, hard journey with a lot of complaining and a lot of grumbling through it. And if you read through, and I encourage you, it's, it's a hard book, but if you read through it, one of the things you'll see that really sticks out is that these people whine and complain constantly. And I think if you read through it again, you will think, so do I. 
we do the same. But today we're in chapter 2. How many of you read or looked over chapter 2? You might have seen the email that that's what we're, we're talking about today. Anybody read through the whole chapter, word for word. Frank's got his hand. God bless you. <laughs> and, and you probably were like, what is he going to do with this? Because chapter 2 is, is the whole chapter is God telling the Israelites, here's where to set up your camp. And here's who's camping on which side of the camp and how you're going to arrange it. And then when you get up to move, here's the order. This is like a kindergarten teacher going, okay, kids, line up, and here's the order of the line. That's the whole chapter. It's all about them lining up according to what God has told them. If you know a little bit of of Old Testament history, you know that God's people, the Jewish people, are broken down into 12 tribes, the, the sons of Israel. And so he's going to give them instructions for each tribe as to where they are to camp in the wilderness. He doesn't want them just setting up their tents anywhere. He says, camp in this direction, in this order. And then when they move and they march through the wilderness, that's how they are to continue to walk. Now, there's a lot of things going on from Israelite history. Who's first? Why they're first? Why they have precedence over others? I'm not going to go into that. It's interesting, uh, but that's not what I want to focus on this morning. You know, some commentators or authors, speakers have found great meaning in the shape of God's people moving through. And they say, look, it's laid out like a cross. I, I, it's interesting. I, I don't think so. I, I think it was laid out like a blob of people. Um, it was just kind of a loose organization of people in a certain order. But I do think that begins to get to something that is important. Now, I want to start in this chapter for us to see what was going on. And at the heart of the chapter is God telling his people what is to be at the center of the camp. Um, And I do want to back up. I meant to read this later. I didn't have it marked in my notes here. But at the beginning of the chapter, just to give you a semblance of what the chapter sounds like, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I'll read down through 4, actually. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. On the east, toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon, son of Amenadab. Remember Nashon? We talked about him last week. His division numbers 74,600. And and then it goes through all of the 12 tribes, how many there were and which side they were to camp on. I'm not going to read it. You can look it over yourself. But then look down at verse 17, because in this, what kind of becomes mind-numbing for us to read all these things, we get down to verse 17, and it says this, then the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites will set out in the middle of the camps. They will set out in the same order as they encamp, each in their own place under their standard. So if you go back to verse 1 and 2, it says the Israelites to are, camp, are to camp around the tent of meeting. And then you go to verse 17 and it says the tent of meeting is to be at the center. Now here's where we get past what seems to be this chapter of meaningless details. And we get to the heart of what God was doing with his people. The way they were to lay out their camp in the desert as they traveled was that the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, this place where God's presence dwelt among his people, was smack dab in the center of the camp. And all of the Israelites 
They all understood that their place of camping was in relationship to where God's presence dwelt. The tabernacle throughout the Old Testament, and God has just recently in the book of Exodus, and again, we'll see some of it in the book of Numbers, he's just told them to set this up. He's just given them instructions, and he says, there in the midst, in the holy of holy place within the tabernacle, that's where God's glory will dwell. The holy sovereign God will dwell among his people. And whenever they camp, whenever they travel, God's presence was to be at the center of everything they did. The focal point of who they are as God's people. And so that's what I want to look at today. Why was God teaching them the importance of him being at the center? And how does that apply to us today? And I want you to imagine you're asleep one night and I come into your house, unbeknownst to you, and I rearrange all your furniture. And I go through your kitchen cabinets and I take everything out of one cabinet and swap it with another. I go through all your storage areas, guys or, or ladies, I go through your tools, I go through your hobby stuff and I move it all to a different place. It's not neater or messier, it's just different. Would you notice Honestly, how many of you are like, I don't even think I'd notice. I don't know. I think we all would notice, right? Which, yeah, might be a good thing. But wouldn't it be frustrating? So I'll tell you a little bit about myself briefly. It's nothing important. Um, I like coffee. And uh, every morning, I have a cup of coffee, right? No big deal. We, we have a relatively small kitchen. We've lived in this house for seven years now. I usually have to look through three different cabinets to find the coffee cup. Now, understand, we only ever keep coffee cups in one cabinet. Only, ever. They don't move. The kids know where they go. They always go to the right place. It's not that I can't find what I'm looking for. It's that I always start in the wrong place. I don't know why, but I start in the wrong place. And I have to find that one cabinet. I think I'm just a little dense. I should not have shared this. I don't know why. It really has nothing to do So maybe if you come into my house and arrange it, maybe you would put it in that place that my brain seems to think it should be in. I don't know what it is. But I do think we get in these these habits, these patterns, and we see it in, I go to this cabinet to get this. Or, Or the peanut butter belongs here in the pantry. It's just where it goes. It's kind of an unofficial rule, but it should be there. And so when things get rearranged, we don't like it. It's uncomfortable, it's unnatural, it's not normal, it's not what we want. I think as you read, especially in the Old Testament, but anywhere in Scripture, one of the things you see again and again is that God has a purpose and a plan of rearranging the lives of his people. And God's people don't like it often. It's hard, it's uncomfortable, it feels unnatural. God, why are you changing things? Why are you telling me to change? Think about stories you might be familiar with. God calls Abraham out of his homeland. He has to go to a place he doesn't know. He has to leave everything that kind of gives him identity. And God says, walk this direction. I'll tell you when to stop. And for the rest of his life, Abraham lives in a country, in a land that is not his own. And he raises a family. And God gives him all these promises But Abraham doesn't really get to see most of them come to fruition. 
God says, I'm going to bless your offspring. And what happens to Abraham's offspring? Well, they end up in Egypt as slaves for hundreds of years. And then now, as we pick up the story in the book of Numbers, here they are in the wilderness. We could go on to Joshua, Judges, the time of the kings, the exiles. Over and over and over again, God rearranges the lives of his people. He takes what they have established, what they believe is normal and natural, and he mixes it up. And it's frustrating. I think a lot of the grumbling throughout the book of Numbers comes from that. It is frustrating. But it is because he is teaching his people something that they are failing to understand and that we still struggle to understand today. And that is every time we reorder our lives, so often we fail to make God the center of it. And so over and over and over again, he is teaching his people he must be the center. Now, why? Why does he have to come through and uproot our lives like that? When I was a kid, I, I've never been clean. I've, I've never keep, like, kept my room clean. I've always been kind of messy. And my mom would come in my room, and this was her way of cleaning my room. She would take everything that wasn't where it belonged, which was everything, and she would throw it on the floor. <laughs> and I was always like, thanks, mom. Like, that really helps. And every time she would say, now put it where it belongs, drove me absolutely nuts. Because it was like, okay, it wasn't clean. I get it. I own that. But it's way worse now, mom. And that's on you. I didn't say that. I mean, that would have gotten me in big trouble. I can say it now. She's not here. Uh, But now I will tell you as a parent, I look back and I go, I get it. She had to show me that it was really, truly a mess and not allow me to be comfortable with where the things had been stuck under the bed and under the dresser. I had to get to that point of, I've got to put that where it belongs. Things you wish you would have learned as a kid that now you get as an adult and you try to teach your kids and hopefully you understand they're probably not going to get it either. So why do we need our lives to be rearranged? Why does God sometimes have to come through and throw things on the floor. At the end of the first chapter of Romans, Paul is describing the destructive effects of sin. And what he describes is much more than just sin is bad things that we shouldn't do. He describes sin as something that has come in and infected and changed the way that we think. And I won't read the whole chapter. There's a lot going on here. But he says this, for although they knew God, he's just talking about people in general, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So he's describing this this kind of descent into sin or this infection that sin has on the way we think. And it starts by us stopping glorifying God. We stop worshiping God and saying he is the most important thing in our lives and in our world. It's a subtle shift to saying anything else is more important than God. That's the beginning of sin. We take him out of the center of our lives. And then our thinking becomes changed. Whatever that is that we've made more important than God, that now sets our priority and determines how we think. 
And so our thinking becomes futile, darkened, because we've put something else in the place of God. And then as you go on, he says, but you think you're so smart. Our life looks good. We see the priority and it's the most important thing and we've rearranged our lives around it and it looks so smart, so wise, so modern, so enlightened. But Paul peels that back and says, you've actually become foolish. And then people will say, oh, I'm an atheist or I'm not religious. I don't worship. But what Paul says is then we start worshiping things that God created. Or we start worshiping things that we've created using the things that God has created instead of God. And he uses the example of idols. We understand this from kind of ancient cultures. Oh, they would make a statue and bow down to it. Or they would worship the sun or the moon or the stars. We understand that and we're not that way. We're much more modern. But we do the same thing. Anything that God has created and given to us that we allow to take his place is an idol. Our own ideas, our happiness, our money, our culture, our family, our physical pleasure, human sexuality, technology, any of this can take the place of God. And we say, this now sets my priorities. All of my my life must fall in line with that. So here we are thinking we're so smart. We're doing things our own way. Each generation invents new ways to be happy. Each generation saying the previous generation was stupid for what they thought would make them happy because now they figured it out. The older generation's laughing because those young guys don't have it figured out. And the truth is none of us have it figured out because we've all replaced God with something lesser and thought it would bring satisfaction. We need God to rearrange our lives. And that's a hard thing to accept. We need God to come in and upset that order that we are clinging to. And as you read scripture, as you learn the stories throughout the Bible, I want you to be thinking about why is God doing that? How is he rearranging the lives of people that are following him? Look at how he is shaping their thinking. And so here in Numbers chapter 2, God is teaching his people something by the very physical way that they are arranging their tents. So that every day as they set up their tents or tore it down or as they walked through the wilderness, they were reminded of this important fact. God was to be at the center of who they are. He had called them into a relationship through Abraham. He had saved them out of Egypt and he brought them to this mountain, given them his laws. And then the question kind of lingers, well, now what? What's this relationship with God going to look like? Has he brought them out of Egypt, saved them through the Red Sea just to say, hey, guys, go ahead, have fun, be free and do whatever you want. I think a lot of us want Jesus to do that for us. Oh, Jesus, save me and then set me free so I can find my own happiness. That's not what God does. He meets with them on Mount Sinai and gives them the law, teaching them what this relationship between a holy God and sinful people is going to look like. And it's hard. Over and over again, Tom referenced this in his prayer, over and over again, they had to sacrifice an animal to die in their place to pay the price for their sins. And Tom, I'm with you. Praise God we don't have to do that. 
we get to worry about coffee stains on carpet. Like, how much worse would it be if we had to be bringing animals in here? That'd be terrible. He was teaching them. He gives them the the tabernacle to set up to say, I am there with you. My presence is with you everywhere you go. And they were to organize their entire camp, the structure of their society, around the center point of who God is and his presence among them. Imagine walking in the wilderness and, and you, you come up over a, a hill or a rise and you see down in the valley this mass of people. Biblical estimates say at this time the Israelites were probably around 2 million. It's a big group of people. But you see that there's an order to the camp. And right there in the middle there's a really fancy tent. It's richly decorated. And there's lots of people going in and out to serve in that richly decorated tent. And it seems like all the other people are doing things in relation to that central tent. Who would you think lived in that tent? If you knew nothing about God, nothing about the Old Testament, who would you think lived in that tent? The king. See, this is one of the things God was teaching his people. I am your King, they would have understood it just like anybody else from their culture. God is their king. He was arranging their camp and their lives to teach them that he is their king. He's also teaching them that he is their life. They all had to set up their camps in relationship to where the tabernacle was. And they were all within a short walking distance to the tabernacle. God makes it clear through his law and the worship regulations that sinners living in the presence of a holy God deserve death. But he also makes clear to them that he is providing a way for their sins to be paid for. And the way that that's going to happen is by them coming, this is them at their time, they had to come to the tabernacle, that center point where God dwelt. And there he, through the various ways he had provided, he would take away their sins. So he teaches them by the very physical setting up of their camp that we're tempted to skip over. He is teaching them, I am your king. I am your life. And all of this is because the all holy, all sovereign, powerful, eternal God is right there with them. Every day they would look over and see the tabernacle. Through their grumbling, wondering when they're going to get to the promised land, how much further, are we going to eat anything other than manna and quail? Can we please have something else? But right there, they could look over and see, there's the tabernacle. That's where God dwells. He's right there with us. They would break camp when God's presence lifted up out of the tabernacle. They would set camp when God's presence descended. Constantly, they were people following and centered around the presence of God. And if you look at the end of the chapter, it says this. So the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards, and that is the way they set out, each of them with their clan and family. And I've referenced to this in previous sermons. You're going to hear it a lot over the next couple of weeks. The first 10 chapters of Numbers, everything's great. It's wonderful. God says, do this. They do it. It's great. Happy people. Wonderful, following God, great believers, real religious people, everything's fine. And then you get to chapter 11 and it all begins to fall apart. But they do what God says. 
They set up their camp this way. They're learning, they're being taught by God that he is at the center of their lives. So how does this translate? Some people would say, oh, the church, the building should be in the center of the community. But this is, I love this building. I love it. It's beautiful. And and it represents a lot of hard work from previous generations that built it back in the late 60s to more recent, the renovation. And there's just great stories there. It's a wonderful building. I love the classes and, and the way we can meet. It's a great tool, but it's just a building. That's all it is. There's nothing more holy about these walls and these chairs. Some of the chairs in the fellowship hall are pretty holy, but that's a different issue. <laughs> You'll have to go and take a look at them to see why. There's nothing, this, this building is not where God dwells. We don't come here to this building because God dwells here. So how do these things apply to us? Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus, after he dies on the cross, right before he ascends, and he's risen from the dead, right before he ascends back to heaven, he gives this. This is known as the Great Commission. And there's, we, we often look at this call to make disciples, which we should. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But now listen, listen to what he says. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I know we can read that and just have these warm fuzzies as, oh, Jesus is with me and he's my friend and my shoulder to cry on. He's right there. And that's true. But when you put this in light of the Old Testament teaching of the tabernacle and how God commanded his people to set up the tabernacle in the middle of the tent, you realize he means something more here. What Jesus is saying is, I am the all-holy, all-sovereign Son of God. I am with you always. My presence, the center of your life, is right there with you and should redefine and rearrange everything about you. I am with you. This is more than just encouragement. This is rearranging. Now you might be saying, come on, pastor. You're making too big a deal out of this. I don't see that. You read this chapter and I don't see that at all. Because I want to show you how this theme is continued throughout Scripture. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus talks to people struggling to find food. They're struggling to find safety, shelter, happiness. They're struggling to find these things in the world around them. And Jesus says this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. He says, guys, get your priorities straight. Make God and his kingdom and his righteousness the center of who you are. You're allowing these other layers to become the priority in your life. Make sure God is at the center. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 38. People are arguing over what's the most important thing in life. What's the most important Old Testament law? And Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, and love others as yourself. But he says the first that you have to get right or nothing else will matter is love the Lord your God. Make him the center of your life. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 to people stuck in that cycle of sin that he introduced in Romans chapter uh, 1. He says this, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you see it there? He says, what is to be at the center of your life? What's to be most important? Your highest calling is to worship God. Bring glory to him in everything that you do. This is to be our center, our core. And in order to do that, we have to not conform to the ways of our world. There are things that seem normal, natural in our world, popular in our world. And the Bible says we have to not conform to them. But we're not just defined as people that are against things. He says, but be transformed. Or another way of saying it would be, but be conformed to who God is. Allow God to change you by renewing your mind. No one becomes a Christian without God rearranging their lives and priorities. It is both a hard and wonderful truth. We must allow God to rearrange our lives. Just as he arranged the camp of the Israelites around his holy presence, so our lives, our priorities, must be arranged around the glorious and saving presence of Jesus Christ. But there's a huge problem with this. We resist. We don't like the person coming in and changing our furniture. We don't like the people coming and moving things around in the cabinets. How much more so would we not want someone to change with what we hold most dear in our lives? We resist. Because we believe that what's at the center of our life is already of utmost importance. And we don't want to lose it. But the truth is that we need to look at, and this is such a hard truth, is that ultimately when we look through all the different layers, what's really at the center of our lives, if it's not God, is me and you. We've put ourselves at the center of our own lives. We are the ones that determine what is good and right and just and happy and everything else. We are the judges. We are the ones who are in control, or so we think. A.W. Tozer writes, Christianity today is man-centered, not God-centered. God is made to wait patiently, even respectfully, on the whims of men. The image of God currently popular is that of a distracted father, struggling in a heartbroken desperation to get people to accept a Savior of whom they feel no need and in whom they have very little interest. To persuade these self-sufficient souls to respond to his generous offers, God will do almost anything, even using salesmanship methods and talking down to them in the chummiest way imaginable. It's a great phrase. This view of things is, of course, a kind of religious romanticism, which, while it often uses flattering and sometimes embarrassing terms in praise of God, manages nevertheless to make man the star of the show. I'm not really sure when A.W. Tozer wrote that, probably back in the 40s and 50s. How much more so is that true today? So much of what we call Christianity has really just become, let's put ourselves at the center and worship ourselves. Pastor John Piper says this another way in a sermon called The God-Centeredness of God. He talks about us wanting to live in a hall of mirrors. 
a room where we can see ourselves from all the different angles, where the things that we want to be highlighted are highlighted, the things we want to be diminished are diminished, and we can turn and twist and see ourselves and look at how awesome we are over and over. And he compares this to going to a place like the Grand Canyon or the ocean. I think he specifically mentions Montana. He says, where you look out and you realize, I am so small. There's a whole universe out there that has so little to do with me. And there is a creator of that universe. And he has a grand plan. And he talks about heaven, but really I think this applies to all of life. Listen to what he says. Do you want heaven to be a hall of mirrors where you like what you see, or do you want all mirrors gone and God magnificent to admire with ever-expanding glories forever? We have made ourselves the center of our lives and of our worship. And we need to understand what God taught his people early on, what they struggled with over and over again. He must be the center. Just as he arranged arranged the tribes of Israel in the wilderness, so our lives must be arranged by him and around him. So how? How can we keep God at the center? Let me just briefly give you four things to consider. Lynn will appreciate this. They all start with a T. To Lynn Ensign, if there's no alliteration, it's not a sermon. So here you go. (laughs) The first is treasure. What is your highest value or what do you treasure the most? The second are your thoughts. What do you think about? What takes up room in your thought life over and over again? Time. What do you spend your time on? There's certain things we must spend time on. I'm not necessarily saying what occupies the most of your time, but the priority of your time. And the last one is your trade-offs. We all have trade-offs in our lives, things we will sacrifice for something else. When we're willing to sacrifice something for something else, it means that other thing has greater priority. So if you want to know what's most important to you, look at the trade-offs in your life. What are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of something else? Is it your time in the Word? Is it coming to church? Spending time with other believers, growing and learning? Is it worshiping God and obeying Him in your life? Or are you willing to trade those things off? to get the promotion at work or to satisfy someone else that disagrees with you, keep others happy, just get by in this world. Where's your treasure? What are your thoughts about? What do you spend time on? And what are your trade-offs? God instructed his people in the Old Testament to be completely God-centered. That is not just an Old Testament priority. That applies to us today. And it's not ultimately about arranging our houses or our tents or even the church. It's about arranging our lives. We are called to be God-centered. And look, it's tough. It's going to look weird in this world to live God-centered. People are going to think that not only are we strange, but that we're wrong. 
And increasingly, we're getting to the point where the society is looking at people that are God-centered as even being evil. This is not new. It is not just a recent development. God's people have gone through it before, and they've been okay. God is with us. Keep God at the center of our lives. And I truly believe that when we do that, as God said, when we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we will then love others as ourselves. But that priority must be kept straight. Love God first and then love others. We must not allow our love for others to change and dictate our love for God. The first core value of this local church, Orchard Community Church, is that we are passionately God-centered. We are passionate about putting God at the center of everything we do as a church and as individuals. We strive to draw attention to the greatness of God and to glorify Him in what we do, say, think, and plan. We will be bold in declaring our love for God, giving thanks for His many blessings, and making known and remembering what He has done. I pulled that straight off of our website. That's who we want to be as a church. God-centered in everything that we do. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to be centered around you. Forgive us for the distractions that we allow to come in and take your place. Some of those are are of utmost importance. They're hugely important in our life or important in our life and in our world, but they are not more important than you. And they will only ever find their true meaning when we are centered and focused on you first. And so Father, I pray that you would help us to open our lives to you. And I pray that each one here would pray, God, rearrange my life if that's what it takes. Upset my priorities, uproot my selfishness and my self-centeredness and refocus my life on you. And help us as a church to be a gathering of people in whom your presence dwells that makes all the difference in the world. As we come together to challenge and encourage and help one another to live with you at the center because we cannot do this alone. And you have always had a pattern of gathering your people into a community and that community did not always do well. And God, we struggle today. We grumble and complain along the way, but you are glorious and gracious to us. So I pray that we would learn the lesson over and over again that we would be God-centered in all that we do. In your name we pray, amen.